2: This week, we're going to discuss the biology of democracy. What are the elements of uh, human biology and human evolution that are relevant in thinking about the challenges and the future of democracy? It's a topic uh, that many democratic theorists, myself included, are ill-prepared to talk about. Uh, We are very fortunate to have, I think, the person who's writing the most interesting work on this topic, on the biology of human societies today. Uh, This is a highly regarded uh, scholar, researcher, explorer, who I've had the great fortune to get to know in the last uh, few months. Uh, His name is Mark Moffitt. Uh, Mark, thank you for joining us. Uh, Jeremy, I'm delighted. Uh, Mark is often called the Indiana Jones of entomology uh, by the National Geographic Society, uh, which is great. I wish I wish someone would call me something like that. Uh, he's a modern-day explorer with more than a little luck on his side, having accidentally sat on one of the world's deadliest snakes—that's another podcast for us to talk about—battled drug lords with dart guns and scrambled up trees to escape elephants, all part of his mission to find new species and behaviors in remote places. Currently, Mark is studying the stability of societies across animal species, that's part of our topic today, and how humans uh, in the present day deal with these issues. He's the author of many books and articles in academic and uh, popular uh, magazines. Most recently, the book that I've read and enjoyed and highly recommend to everyone, The Human Swarm, it's a great title, How Our Societies Arise, Thrive, and Fall, Uh, Mark's received a lot of awards for his work. Uh, And again, they're academic awards, but they're also the kinds of cool non-academic awards that very few scholars receive. The one I wanted to just single out is the Lowell Thomas Medal from the Explorers Club for his studies climbing into forest canopies uh, around the world. So we have a really interesting uh, guest today. Um, Before we get to our conversation with Mark, of course, we have Zachary's um, scene-setting poem. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? You don't really wish you were on a mountainside.
0: I don't. So let's hear it. (laughs) If it weren't for your rosy lips, your sparkling eyes, your shaking hips, if it weren't for the stories that you told me in the rain, if it weren't for the memory of all misfortune, all the pain, I'd probably be sitting on a rock somewhere, running my hand through my overgrown hair. I'd look down at the canyon where they used to do the rafting and I'd watch the empty hill and such and stare up at the clouds and when nightfall shrouds the mist on fields no longer plowed, then I'd lay back on the rock and bring myself to sleep, laughing. But I stay here waiting at a bus stop at the center of a wheel of human habitation, recreation, occupation. I sit here by the bus stop on a park bench made of steel. I feel dollars in my pockets where there should be wild fruits. I see the wild horsemen instead on buses wearing suits. If it weren't for the way, it all seems to snap right into place when you are reading Shakespeare on my tapestry of lace. If it weren't for the way it feels to hold it all inside and only see it drip, drip, drop, whispering, hide, you don't really wish you were on a mountainside. If it weren't for the way you come into focus in my eyes, and I can see you over there, buried in their jackets and silk ties. If it weren't for the miracle that it all grows up and it all dies, I'd be on all fours right now,
2: swatting away the flies. I I love the arc of that poem, Zachary, and I love the, the, the contradictions and the visualizations. What is your poem about?
0: My poem was really about uh, sort of trying to comprehend how, how thin the basis of civilization is and uh, the ways in which so much of it depends on some strange human tendency to, to, to read Shakespeare or or to fall in love. And I think that uh, it, it really captures how, how close we are uh, to, to, to being wild again.
2: Right. We're not as advanced as we think we are. Uh, Exactly. That's interesting. Uh, Mark, I think this is a perfect entry point. Uh, Your work emphasizes so beautifully and so vividly uh, the challenges different species have, including human beings, living with those who are different. Uh, You look at ants, you look at all kinds of animals, uh, you look at human beings, of course. Uh, How have humans learned to live together with those who are different from us in, in ways that other species have not?
1: Well, I'd say uh, Zachary's poem hit hit me just uh, square center there because I've spent a lot of time thinking about things on mountainsides and in uh, rainforests, and uh, that was true of predecessors in biology, even Al- uh, Alfred Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin spending all those years in the jungle just contemplating things away from their versions of the Internet and uh, just thinking. And so what I've thought about is the fact that I've had a chance to live uh, – Uh, not only with different creatures in many parts of the world, but with uh, tribal and hunter-gatherer groups and to contemplate how uh, societies function. And by society, I mean a group other than our immediate family to to which we feel a great allegiance and we're willing to fight for and even die for, these things that persist through the generations. And uh, when you look at uh, societies, in animals... The accommodation, uh, the, the, living with those who are just dis- different boils down to accommodating uh, diversity, uh, living with more than the immediate family. It's basically stripped down to that. Uh, identification with that group trumps uh, kinship in many cases and even cooperation. Uh, societies can have their uh, uh, enemies within them and friends outside and so forth, both in animals and Uh, certain animals and some humans. And so those are all interesting questions to consider. And uh, I'll I'll start off by describing what I think is the most remarkable thing in the world, which is a coffee shop like a Starbucks. I don't know if you have them in Austin. I suppose you do. But uh, they are... We have uh, Starbucks
2: and we have all kinds of local coffee shops.
1: Oh, probably better than Starbucks. But the most amazing thing about them, no matter what the brand is... Uh, you can walk into them and not want to kill everyone uh, or run away in terror. See, this would be impossible for a chimpanzee. Uh, and this was something I suddenly struck me at one point. Uh, a chimpanzee has to know everyone in the room to be comfortable. Humans don't. Chimpanzees don't allow us for strangers. Humans do. And that's true of many kinds of species with societies, uh, from lions and elephants and so forth. And uh, um, the allowance for strangers that human beings have come up with is uh, determined what I, by what I call markers. And those are different aspects of identity. We're basically walking billboards for who we are. And so we can move around people and we're constantly sensing those around us as, as others we are comfortable with based on all these signals that they're putting out. We're doing it at a very high rate. Psychology is, this is the center of a lot of psychology studies now. And uh, they include all kinds of big things like culture, but all kinds of small things too, cues that are not even consciously recognized. There's a, a researcher, Abigail Marsh at Georgetown, who has found that you know, you can, from a great distance, you can detect whether someone is an American by how they walk or, wa- or wave their hand. People don't realize they can do it, but they they do. Uh, they have this ability, and it's not something that even... Uh, could consciously think about most of the time. So we are registering people all the time, and those registrations are what allows uh, strangers to exist. Um, To to get to your question, allowing for those that are different uh, is something that humans really have excelled at beyond what any other species can do. These identities, all these markers, signals of our identity, uh, in hunter gatherers would have been very similar. Their societies had little diversity. They had no, nothing equivalent to an ethnic group within them. Uh, but the incorporation of massive numbers of different peoples uh, has been the single most radical innovation in the history of the human society. And it gave societies the option of, of growing by absorbing formally separate uh, our adversarial groups uh, to create ethnicities. Uh, Groups that once comprised their own societies came to occupy the same society. And uh, the story of how that happened uh, and how these identities allowed it to happen, all these markers I talked about, is really the history of humanity. Um, Because healthy societies don't freely merge. This is something I discovered looking through the animal kingdom. Societies stay apart uh, unless there's something severely wrong. So incorporating outsiders was a big deal the fact that we can do this at all
2: and and mark to me this is stunning what you've said because the assumption among historians and political theorists right is that there's some state of nature human beings are in this is obviously an artificial intellectual construct and that they naturally gravitate towards society and and democracy this is of course what aristotle writes and many philosophers after that you're saying just the opposite. You're saying that this was actually not foreordained and that it actually took a lot of work. How did it happen then? How how would you rewrite that history?
1: Well, uh, we always had the capacity to allow in outsiders in our society. And that uh, was a necessity for animals and early humans because our societies were quite small. Uh, so you had to have Uh, you would be inbreeding unless you could have a means of letting others in. And so that would happen one at a time, usually a mate transferring between societies. And when that person transferred, they would have to take on some of these aspects of our local identity to become acceptable to us. And this assimilation in its earliest manifestation was uh, simply married people arriving or maybe uh, survivors from a war, just one or two individuals that would be allowed into a hunter-gatherer group. Um, this accelerated greatly when our societies settled down. Hunter gatherers that moved around had societies of a thousand or two. Any society of more than two thousand anywhere in history has a history of uh, war, subjugation, and possibly slavery. And this is how it came about. Um, recent times, mass immigration uh, arose, but that wasn't there in early history. You know, we didn't have uh, mixed societies of all kinds of ethnicities, even even in hunter-gatherer times in their small societies, people were pretty uniform, as I said. But because immigration is based on the same psychology of the history we had with war and subjugation, these underlying power and status differences haven't changed. Uh, we are comfortable with immigrants coming into the country if, we, uh, if they're contributing without competing. For desired jobs and resources, and so this is a continued problem. Uh, incoming people uh, and uh, ethnic groups, that is, minor ethnic groups, small small population ethnic groups, not the majority, but other ethnic groups, uh, have to have a lower status than us as they did in these early times of which were dominated by war even today and these differences in statuses is certainly a problem for democracies
2: it's such a good point, Mark, and and it, it really captures, I think, one of the key characteristics and challenges of our of our societies today is managing um, the different populations, especially in a world where we need talent pools uh, that come from other places, and where people are moving more rapidly, perhaps than ever before, from from place to place. Uh, w- what are some of the strategies, in addition to hierarchy, that you describe that that societies have used? to survive and, and, and stay together uh, when so much of what you're saying points to the, the forces that tear them apart? How have they stayed, how have they stayed together despite these forces?
1: Well, there's a, there's a lot to be gained in larger societies, particularly over the long term. Incoming people uh, have to invest part of their identity and social obligations into the greater society of which they're a part. And so, in fact, minorities, in a sense, are like societies within a society. They have their own identity, but they also have a superordinate identity, psychologists would say. Society-wide commonalities uh, that distinguish the us versus them differences. And that allows us people to live together. And uh, people are fine with that. Part of it is called system justification. People often see their position in society as as natural so even people of lower status in the society will see that as something deserved and of course that is something uh, it would be nice to work against that but it's just a, a, a uh it's a strategy in a sense for survival and people of course over the generations ethnic people will uh hopefully move up in in status and uh but you know there's this question of who really belongs, and this is what really is at the basis of the problem that uh, democracies place. If I tell you, you may know this uh, question, but to think of an American, think of an American. And virtually anyone, no matter what their ethnic group, will immediately envision a white male. And in a way, the dominant members of societies, which are, are the the group that initially formed the society and has control over the resources and symbols of that nation remain the pure representatives of that society. So, you know, there are studies showing that people of Asian descent who are born in the U.S., they could celebrate our American flag, and yet studies show that they more readily associate that flag with white Americans than with fellow Asian Americans. And so these distinctions are there and really hard to work against if you want to believe that everyone is equal in a democracy. And, and what happens when this whole system goes south? Why is it if we, if
0: we gain so much from cooperating within these hierarchies that, that we see wars and things like that, um, is that? Is that a natural product of the system or is it the system collapsing?
1: Well, I argue in the book, you know, uh, Jared Diamond has, a, has books out, Collapse and so forth, where he talks about uh, societies falling apart. And he basically points to a certain uh, number of extreme examples of that, you know, where wars or famine come along. And I would argue that he's only getting a very tiny por- portion of the picture because all societies go through uh, a cycle. And uh, part of that cycle is that identities change and societies shatter. Over time, even if we were a pure, racially pure society, uh, the way we think about each other would de- deviate here and there until people wouldn't get along. That, that's what happened with hunter-gatherers with their more uniform societies. You know, Languages would change in different parts of their territory and so forth, and eventually their societies would break. And even in, uh, you know, among uh, the societies of recent times, uh, the archaeologist Joyce Marcus has found that state societies across antiquity right up today uh, to today have a a finite lifespan, uh, normally ranging from two to five centuries. And hunter-gatherers probably had societies that lasted about that long, too. So we think of America as a young society, but it's actually rather middle-aged and it's showing its creakiness and these divergences in the way people are identifying with that society now. And
2: and, and Mark, would you say that democracy is an advantage for Mar- American society or has it become a disadvantage from a biological point of view?
1: Well, um, the the main problem is... Again, how we treat each other in terms of defining what democracy is and who it applies to, because uh, possessing a passport is uh, something worked out by governments, and that's been largely uncoupled from how our brains register who belongs. So the formal requirements of citizenship and the psychological assessments of membership don't mesh. So an immigrant arrives and and, uh, goes through all these tests and learns things that most citizens don't even know. And yet that does isn't really matter. Membership at the most intimate level isn't a matter of knowing facts, but it's a way of being. It's a way of walking, talking. It's all these subtle clues we sense in each other. And uh, it's impossible to put uh, into immigration laws this kind of deep tissue of national identity. And so when sociologist T.H. Marshall talked about citizen, citizenship, he talked about it being accepted as a full member of the society. But what is meant by full? Uh, people uh, have different statuses as members of societies. And that's expressed in sort of the the, the, the strategies, uh, the d- expressions of how people identify with the society, the nationalists and patriots of societies, which says, uh, psychologists look at, uh, I strip it down to the idea that nationalists are focused on protection and patriots are focused on providing for their people. Uh, so uh, nationalists are very defense-oriented pa- patriots, you know, make sure everybody has uh, what they need. But who is their people? Nationalists tend to prize those aspects of identity that are set apart by those, the trusted majority. Whereas uh, patriots are more inclusive of uh, minorities, and yet they still show biases if you look at them closely. Uh, So uh, nationalists, because they're focused on uh, other people of other nationalities and minority members as being more of an outsider group, take a narrow view of who truly is part of a society. And they're more comfortable with this majoritarian idea of democracy in which the dominant people, the people in control have the primary say in governance. So hence, which votes, votes counts uh, depends uh, your, on your point of view, these expressions of how you identify with the society. And those alternative views, both are expressions of democracies. And um, you know, I have my own opinion about which one is right, but they're both uh, logically consistent views on you know which votes count. It's
2: so interesting. Uh, it maps on to what uh, many of us write about in terms of the history of uh, the Republican and the Democratic parties um, and and the ways in which they define who's included and who isn't and how it changes over time. So it's really interesting to me, Mark, how the, the biological uh, logic and evidence that you've uh, analyzed so deeply uh, overlaps, uh, it, I think, reinforces and runs parallel to the historical evidence. Uh, That that we see, do do you believe that many of the issues we're having in American society today have this biological root? Is that how you would look at our divisions today?
1: Well, you know, you can uh, whether you think of them as genetically rooted or uh, just universal, universally learned, they are uh, they are deeply rooted things, and they're not easily changeable. You know, uh, once you you these biases psychologists show, um, are true even for liberal minded people, liberal minded people still have a greater pride in their own group. And because of that pride, they can, uh, without recognizing it, uh, be biased against other groups. So, you know, how you have situations like where doctors, um, give better treatment to people of their own ethnic group or the majority ethnic group than others without even recognizing it. And they would probably be totally uh, surprised that they're doing this. So uh, the fact that societies and these ethnicities and races manage to stick together despite these prejudices uh, is is amazing to me, though, because other species can't do it. So this is the really good news. We're at least able to do that. And we don't need to be negative about ethnicities and races or other societies. We can gain from them and we can get a positive view on them. The trouble is that once we start building in uh, negative biases, they're very hard to erase, and particularly at times of social stress. This is when these points of view, you know, really arise. And, um, you know, Sumner uh, is, uh, talked about the fact that it takes war for a society, to draw a society together. Uh, he was That was more than a century ago. But the, looking at it closely, the problem there is that uh, it doesn't necessarily draw the society together. It draws the majority people together, much more than the ethnic groups, because the majority people, uh, you know, Caucasians in the case of the United States, uh, control uh, most of the resources and symbols of the nation, and uh, that's, uh, that means that uh, uh, ethnic groups always feel a bit outs- as outsiders, and they're be- being treated as outsiders. And uh, you know, right as we said today, in terms of who gets to vote and and why.
2: It's such an important point, and And I think it really helps us understand our moment, particularly your, your observation that stresses, and these stresses can be economic, they can be health, like something like COVID. Uh, they can also be stresses that are caused by social media and the circulation of particularly incendiary words. Uh, but those stresses exacerbate these deep divisions that you've rooted in our in our biological experiences which leads me to, to to ask the most important question i think mark the question we always like to ask on this podcast uh, how can we use this knowledge to improve our democracy what what should we do it's clear that this is a big task and in some ways biology runs against our political aims in reinforcing and growing and creating a more diverse democracy nonetheless with that challenge how can we use your, your deep knowledge and experience and research to, to improve our democracy? What are the things we can do coming out of your research?
1: Well, we're always going to have these social stresses. And our perception of the existence of different races and ethnic groups is, are not going to go away. You know, no matter how much crossbreeding comes about, people divide the world into categories, including each other and they automatically do this, and they build all kinds of expectations around them. But in terms of the uh, what to do to, to strengthen democracy, at least, you know, the dictum, all men are created equal, applies best uh, to hunter-gatherers, the they were egalitarian, they were egalitarian, excuse me, ethnically uniform people. Uh, right now, as I said, we don't have that, but we what we do have is, uh, something that Jefferson first pointed out, uh, that you need to have some sort of core identity in mind. Uh, and when formulating, uh, you know, ideals about rights, religious commitment and worth act ethic, that's what he was talking about. Uh, it, you needed some commonality there among all these different people. You needed to have a strong thread of common culture and collective belonging. And that's, uh, what America's tried to do, we had to cobble it together from nothing. Uh, most societies have an ancient history of these things, so we came out with uh, flags and other things de novo, and our symbols have therefore become exceptionally important to us because we don't have a, a really, really deep history like you know China does, uh, but. Even Jefferson fretted that you know the flood of immigrants would warp uh, the direction uh, and create a, of the U.S. and create a incoherent mass. I think he said. Uh, the, 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 so we have to create in the the people who come in immigrants and among the community uh, here a sense. this common culture and that has to be strong and the trick about that is that the dominant people controls that core they really decide more than anyone else what is what makes us american how you should behave and so forth it isn't a perceived uh unit it isn't a unity across all people who does do that
2: and so just sort of building on on that, uh, what would you advise our listeners who care about the future of democracy, who are concerned that these biological pressures towards uh, violence, separation, hatred, that these pressures are winning out today? What would you encourage them to do on a day to day basis?
1: Well, this keeping a, this. Uh, expectation of a common culture and a a core that really matters to everyone as much as possible. And of course, uh, even that's being torn at from left and right uh, around what's most important there. But, you know, that thread is what holds societies together. The other rather oddly uh, fortunate thread for us is that uh, we... Most societies nowadays, uh, are looking through the archaeological history, fall apart uh, along boundary lines that were once different societies within them, ethnic groups that occupied this area versus that, that area, for example. R- the different parts of, that uh, was once the Soviet Union, for example, uh, broke off in logical places. Uh, we don't have any logical pra- places to break. Uh, uh, there are no, you know, there's no, Indian tribes are too small in population to carve out a big part of the US for themselves, a single Indian tribe. Uh, we are mixed around everywhere. So we're kind of stuck with each other. I don't think, I mean, the, the Civil War failed because there were actually attempts to get some kind of common identity uh, thrust at the, the people down there, the sense that they belonged together. But really, most of them down there thought of themselves as Americans, even during the war. And uh, there was no sense of, you know, the the war broke down at the end, I think in part because there was no sense of uh, urgency around a common identity of being Southern. So even though there are regional differences today, there there's no distinct boundary lines to them. And this be, sense of being stuck with each other, I think is a good thing, because we learn from each other and we gain from each other. Uh, the patterns of stress around uh, periods of trouble that we're going through now come and go through history. There's been a cycle. There's a fellow named Peter Turkin who looks at the cycles Of history and finds that there's a fifty year cycle of this kind of stress, you know, the 1960s, 1910s, 1860s, and so forth. And we're now in the worst of it, unfortunately. I wish I had been born a little later so I could experience what will probably be a great time in 2040. But you know, I think we uh, we are just dealing with behaviors that are intrinsic to human humans that are hard to get around. But actually, lead to our success. There's a question of why we have so many kinds of personalities in our societies. Why all these personality differences? Why are there uh, nationalists and patriots? Uh, why are there all these, uh, you know, uh, people that are open to experience? You know, the the five big personality traits that psychologists talk about. And I think this is part of the reason for our success. It isn't that we get along with each other. In fact. Uh, since the beginning, there have been people with na- national, uh, nationalist and patriotic points of view. Uh, hunter-gatherers have them. Societies all the, around the world have them. And the dialogue between them, the arguments, the exasperation may be part of how we work out things to decide how much to invest in defense versus nurturing our people. Uh, it just may be an arduous way that the human species works.
2: It's such an important point, and uh, the great historian of a prior generation, William McNeil, uh, had written about this. He was actually in dialogue and often critical of Jared Diamond, who you you commented on before. Uh, McNeil's argument was precisely yours, that if you look at the historical record, the societies that have more diversity have periods of disorder, but that actually produces innovation. And that innovation is often what takes them out of their disorder and allows them to thrive, uh, as you were positing that we will in 2040, uh, hopefully, hopefully so Uh, across American history, that's certainly been the case. Um, it is our divisions that have also led to some of our greatest breakthroughs if you think about uh, progressive policy reform, if you think about the New Deal, if you think about the ways in which many of our technological centers and our universities and others ha- have grown. So there does seem to be a comparative advantage to diversity if you can get through those cycles of division and make it to the moments of innovation, which is what, what, what you're positing. Zachary, does this resonate with you? I know your uh, generation worries quite a lot about the future of our society more than mark and i did when we were your age i think and does this biological perspective help you help you to understand where we've come from and does it offer you similar optimism to the optimism that i think mark and i share about this
0: i think it does i i think that the uh this sort of broader view of human history uh allows us to see the ways in which um our period isn't uh isn't a novelty that that our division isn't new, and that um, that that these moments of of, of stress and social strain uh, can, in the end, produce uh, better societies. Um, and I think this argument about the sort of a, a common culture is important. And and I, but I think also that common culture has to come from 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 everyone. And part of what makes human groups so powerful is that we're able to to draw from so many different influences and and even from the natural world.
2: Uh, in, in many cases as well. Right. And create a more vibrant common culture, which exactly. comes from comes from that diversity. Mark, I want to give you the last word. Uh, one of the really interesting points I took away from your book, The Human Swarm, that again, I hope everyone reads, um, is is that we, we continue to have a lot to learn about democracy from studying non-humans, from studying other animals. Uh, I, I would just like to hear you reflect on that a little more because so many of the people we talk to on this podcast, so many of the people, quite frankly, I interact with are the people like Myself, who study human beings, of course you are doing that too. But what's so unique about your work and the work of the great Edmund Wilson, who you worked with, uh, is that you you um, you know you go well beyond humans to to teach us in a way I guess Jane Goodall does also that by studying non humans we learn a lot. I, I would just like to close on that: uh, how we can learn about democracy from the non human species. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it's you know what's fun now in science is the possibility of free-ranging across disciplines. And that's been what I've tried to do. And that was what my mentor, E.O. Wilson, is known for too, because there's a lot of narrowness now. And, you know, s- s- politici- people in political science aren't necessarily finding out what anthropologists are learning or psychologists. And the psychology of how these things are done is how these things transpire in societies is fascinating. you know it can be applied through all kinds of things in history, including to how animals respond to each other you know the the question of it being appropriate to compare to animals is one I'm uh, faced with all the time when I talk to people. You know, I study ants, and people have found that. Uh, very uh, inappropriate at times. They think, well, what are you talking about ants and humans? And I go, like, uh, comparing two things that are identical is extremely boring. Real insights in science come about <laughs> by finding points of comparison between things that are ordinarily thought of as really different. And that's what ants and humans allow and uh, us to look at, because Ants, despite the fact having no brains practically, very tiny brains, and uh, uh, not looking (laughs) at all like us, looking like aliens end up actually being much more like modern humans than chimpanzees. No chimpanzees has assembly lines and uh, teamwork and roadways and infrastructure and highway rules and all the kinds of things ants do. And why is that? Because ants and humans have these societies where they can be around strangers. Chimpanzees can't do that. Once you have that capacity, you can have societies of millions. And some ants create these huge societies. And once you have a society of millions, you have to deal with public waste issues. And ants do that, and humans do that. Chimpanzees don't worry about public waste, I can tell you. Their feces are getting thrown about. So, you know, <laughs> the ants and human comparisons actually yield a lot of stuff. And there's actually points in which ants actually have something comparable to a democracy. And so do honeybees. Uh, They have a kind of choice by voter turnout. If there's a problem with the nest and they have to move, uh, what they do is they fan out and everybody looks for a new place to move, to a new home. And they come back and they inform others about it. And once enough individuals arrive at the same choice, it's as if they voted for that choice. It's called achieving a quorum, and everybody just decides to go there. So they they do choose things in a way that's a kind of primitive version of a democracy, at least. When then in an emergency, it has to be dealt with fast. The whole colony can die unless they find a good nest. And so that's how they do it.
2: Mark, uh, that is uh, inspiring, truly inspiring what you just shared with us, and it it captures one of the core themes of our podcast, which is that we can learn so much about how to improve our society by moving beyond the headlines and the daily partisan babble and actually looking deeply uh, at our world and other worlds and taking lessons, uh, ideas, and inspiration from them. You've modeled that uh, so perfectly. Uh, again, I want to encourage our, our listeners if they want more with the same enthusiasm to read the human swarm, your book. And, uh, Mark, I just want to thank you for, for joining us and sharing, uh, so many of your
1: insights with us. Thank you, Mark. Jeremy, it's been a delight and Zachary too. Anyway, I hope I can get down sometime to your neck of the woods and maybe, uh, teach a class or something. anyway, it'd be fun to see you again. You, you, are, you have an
2: open, open door invitation to come to class anytime. I know my students would love to hear, hear you and, and uh, enjoy, enjoy time with you. Uh, Zachary, I want to thank you for your wonderful, thoughtful poem as always. And most of all, we want to thank our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy.